Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbett. Glad to have you with us. We explore the ideas behind today's events. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Easter, Dave. Happy Easter, Matt. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Great week. Great week of uh, reminding, being reminded of um, what it's all about. Good Friday. We have a, um, a tradition here at Geneva where they flower the cross on Thursday, which is really special. So it'll be, right. it'll be neat neat for everyone here. So yeah, how's New York? Yeah, pretty good. We've got a beautiful week this week. The kids are off uh, for Easter week. And they're enjoying every minute of it because it's 60 degrees, 70 degrees, I think, today. So we finally had that breakthrough after a few weeks where maybe you'd get a, a 60 degree day and then it'd be down to 40 and back and forth. But uh, we've got five or six straight days of, of nice weather and, and no school. So that's a, a great combination for them. Easter week off at the Parks House for homeschooling. Correct? Yeah, not at, not at King's. We do get Good Friday off, which which is always nice. So. We compressed the teaching week into four days, so I've got an extra class tomorrow that I wouldn't normally have, but uh, it'll be good to have the Easter weekend and enjoy a nice weekend last weekend with my parents, and we got to go to Yankee Stadium for the Red Sox game. Game did not go as well as we hoped. An early home run by the Red Sox quieted the Yankees crowd, but unfortunately, two two run home runs later on in the game brought them back to life, made it a little more challenging to be wearing our Red Sox hats among the throngs, but there's actually a pretty you know, playful back and forth among Yankees and Red Sox fans. I think there's enough mutual respect built up over the last 20 years that it's 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 more fun than maybe it used to be. So one weekend, how do you feel about the Red Sox chances? Well, it hasn't been a great week, but you know, you play your first five, including today, six games on the road. Would have liked to have taken two out of three in Yankee Stadium. Certainly want to take two out of three against Detroit. I mean, the bats haven't woken up yet, so the pitching's been okay. We've got a number of these reclamation projects for starting pitchers. Bullpen's been decent. You know, so I think too early to tell. I, I, I'd i still say it feels like an 85-88 win team, not a 95-100 win team, not a World Series contender. But, you know, uh, they're not out of it yet. So it, it's as long as the season's not over by May, uh, I'll be happy. So on to Aristotle. Uh, I joked a little bit before we went on the air that we've had some weeks where we could pull together some chapters in Aristotle and, and still have enough to work with. But the assignment for this week, which was book seven, chapters one through three, probably every chapter could be a week episode unto itself. Um, some yeah. really amazing stuff here that even had you not gone through a good portion of Aristotle's politics, if you had just read one part of it uh, and applied it to life, that, that this uh, discussion, uh, book seven, chapters one through three, may have been one of those uh, two or three places in the book that uh, there's really a highlight of Aristotle's thought. And you see why just from the 
the question that he asked at the beginning of chapter one of, of book seven. He writes, uh, those may be expected to lead the best life who are governed in the best manner of which their circumstances admit. We ought therefore to ascertain, first of all, which is the most generally eligible or best life, and then whether the same life is or is not the best for the state or for individuals. So what is the best life and is the best life for the state the same as the best life for individuals? And the categories of things in which he measures what the best life for the state is or the best life for individuals are, are pretty common sense, right? That there are such things that are external goods, uh, possessions uh, that, that we have. States have possessions, individuals have possessions. There is secondly, the goods of the body. So how healthy the body of the state is, how healthy the body of the political community is, or for the individual, how healthy your individual body is. And then thirdly, the soul, the goods of the soul, right? A state, he would argue, has a soul. It has a spirit that runs through it, uh, that holds it together or doesn't hold it together. Is, is the soul of a state healthy or not? And then likewise for individuals, what is the state of one's individual soul? So is it a good thing to have external goods? Is it a good thing to have the goods of the body or the goods of the soul? And how do you measure what is best between these three types of goods? So Aristotle here will conclude and get your feedback from this conclusion. No one would maintain that he is happy who is not in him a particle of courage or temperance or justice or prudence, who is afraid of every insect which flutters past him and will commit any crime, however great, in order to gratify his lust of meat or drink who will sacrifice his dearest friend for the sake of a half, half a farthing is as feeble and false in mind as a child or a madman. These propositions are almost universally acknowledged as soon as they are uttered, but men differ about the degree or relative superiority of this or that good. So here, Matt, this great statement that happiness involves goodness, a certain type of goodness that involves courage, temperance, justice, or prudence. No one would admit that someone is happy who lacks of these things. What do you make of this beginning argument? Yeah, so these are what are known as the four cardinal virtues of, of the ancients. You can read about some of the details of this in Aristotle's Ethics or in Plato's Republic. And this is really building upon Aristotle's ethics, where he talks about happiness, the nature of happiness. And so in that conversation, he asked the question, you know, can you be happy if you're poor? Uh, can you be happy if you're, if you're sickly? Uh, can you be happy if you have bad character? And, and there's at least a sense in which the answer is yes to those first two questions. And it's definitely no to the third, right? A poor person can be happy, uh, maybe not blessed, Right? If you're constantly in want, uh, some qualities of character are more difficult to display. And of course, you're distracted from other good things by the need to provide basic sustenance for yourself. If you're sickly, again, you're distracted from other good activities that you might otherwise be able to engage in. And you know, you're suffering pain and struggling through that. But, but it's the qualities of character that are central to the question of, of human happiness. Uh, this is a kind of excellence that we don't find in other creatures. And if you go all the way back to the very beginning of our study of Aristotle, 
we remember that that the city comes together for the sake of of living, but it, it continues for the sake of living well. And it's this critical notion that human beings are distinct from other creatures in that they have the capacity to live well, to seek happiness according to their nature. And we would say according to the way that God has designed us to, to achieve happiness. Uh, and so it's these qualities of character that are most central to what it means for us to be happy rather than our health or our wealth. So you say, okay, that makes a lot of sense, right? That what is essential in assessing a nation's health is to look at the character of the nation or in assessing an individual's health to look at the character of the individual and to make character primary in your overall assessment and to place it above and beyond external goods and the goods of the body. So that just makes so much sense. But then you move, you pivot to 21st century modern life. And what do we value more than character? What do we teach to be more important than character? What do we emphasize when we're trying to distribute or redistribute the things of this world? We tend to think first of external goods. And then secondly, perhaps the goods of the body that will allow you to have those external goods. And character, while kind of acknowledged, is a little bit of an afterthought in the whole process of figuring out just what we need to do, both as a a nation uh, and as individuals. Why is this the case? Yeah, that's a great point. And that's that's so evident in our political campaigns. It's, it's the economy stupid, going back to Bill Clinton in 1992, and really every campaign since, right? With maybe exception of uh, the time shortly after 9-11, you know, where, where foreign affairs sometimes intervene and become an important matter in, in elections. But but typically, it's, it's about the economy. It's about those external goods. And obviously, over the last two years, it's been really about the health of the body, and, and maybe more so in terms of the government's own conception of its job, even than the people, right? Maybe the people would have been content to have less of a focus on the, the health of the body, but the government itself was, was zeroed in on that above all else. And, and frankly, is, is very uncomfortable in talking about matters of character. We, we sort of vaguely acknowledge that there are qualities that we would want people to have. And, and you know, if you, you grossly violate norms in certain ways, you know, you're, you're thoroughly corrupt. The Lieutenant Governor, of, of New York had to resign uh, yesterday after being indicted for bribery. And of course there's a legal process that'll be followed and maybe maybe you'll prove not, not guilty, but you know the, the, we know the corruption that often surrounds Albany uh, with, with respect to state of New York politics. And so you, know, like, you can't cross that line. But, but in terms of those four cardinal virtues you mentioned a moment ago, the idea that the government would try to encourage those or that it would be important for leaders to display those, that's very far from where we are. Yeah, and I think some other things that are, are going on that kind of build upon your point is that we have a tendency to want to reduce life to things that are measurable or things that are more easily, easily measured. Right. So you can measure 
right? The amount of external goods you can have. You can take a look at, you know, what's in your bank account or what your overall net worth is or what the GDP is or what the inflationary rate is at any given time. These, these are numbers. These are statistics that you, you can turn to. And, and once again, in talking about the goods of the body, right? You can measure the health of the body. You can talk about uh, body mass index. You, you can talk about health, blood pressure, all the rest. So anything that's reducible to a number, we seem to kind of assign with this great value uh, because you can determine health there. But anything that kind of involves the realm of character traits, right? Virtue, justice, prudence, temperance, courage, those are debatable, or we make them debatable, um, I think, to the point, wrongly, that we think that they're indeterminate, that they're, they're relative. Well, your, your notion of what is just is different than my notion of what is just. So let's kind of set justice aside, right, as, as a conversation, or what you think is courageous, I might claim is reckless. So we're going to likewise not really have a conversation. And really, agree that, yeah, there's a kind of common sense notion of what courage is that we could probably find, right, a common denominator there, and we could do so for different virtues, and and we could probably measure that. It's a, it's a difficult conversation, and maybe it involves more than social science or stats. It involves perhaps reading literature or history, and and but it's a more difficult conversation, but a conversation that we tend not to want to have and I think that it's a more difficult conversation because to live virtuously, to be temperate, to be courageous, to be prudent, to be just, those are hard things, right? It's, it's probably easier to practice a good diet, right, to, than to live that way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it asks something of us and it, it really asks us to be open to correction, to be open to somebody pointing out our faults and our flaws and, and dealing in a reasonable way with our own. I mean, this is, of course, the, the nature of, of the period of Lent, you know, and, and some Christian traditions leading up to Easter is, is a time of, of, of reflection on one's sin. And uh, people might choose to give up certain things, right, as a, as a testimony to their willingness of, to do some self-examination. Um, and, you know, in our, in our church, every time we have the Lord's Supper, which is less frequently than in some other churches, there's a whole preparation that's read the week before about, about preparing for the Lord's Supper and, and reflecting upon one's, one's soul right? and, and reflecting upon patterns of sin that one needs to um, overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so yeah, I mean, this, this is harder work, um, and, and it requires a, a willingness to be humbled by reflection that one hasn't measured up right, to the standards. Right? You know, getting back to your point about Kind of the way we relativize these these traits, I think that's that's certainly the our rhetoric, uh, and yet we can't always really follow through on that. You think about what happened just a few weeks ago in the early days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and everyone sees Zelensky, and you know, there's universal admiration, right? They're like there's there's a an obvious measure of courage there that just can't be denied, and and people react to that, right? Even even if you know, in theory, they believe that there are no standards for these abstract virtues, yet they can't really follow through on their theory, 
you see an example of courage in that moment and you, and you admire it. And that's probably true of these other virtues as well, in particular moments of crisis or where they're really necessary. You know, part of it is we just play these rhetorical games. You know, we're, 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 we're following our, our favorite pet theories and, you know, just tisking people for violating the terms of those theories. And then something real happens. <laughs> you know, then one nation invades another, then the, you know, the, the economy collapses, there's some national calamity of some sort. And then you realize, well, actually, we really do need prudence in our leaders because now we have a pandemic we're dealing with. And it's not going to do to just kind of, you know, be really good at, at spinning your way through things on Twitter or, or dominating the latest news cycle. We're going to need people to actually make statesmanlike judgments and decisions for the sake of the country. Yeah. And this is where Aristotle goes with the conversation that you intentionally need to, if, if you're a statesman and you have responsibility for a political community, you need to think about you know, setting goals for that community in terms of its character and then setting some limits too, realizing that there, there's a measure that one uh, needs to apply to community life, that, that you can have too much of a good thing, especially when it comes to external goods, or you can focus uh, too, great, too greatly on a particular um, good to the detriment of other parts of, of uh, who you are. And that this advice uh, for a statesman in setting goals and setting limits is also advice to be followed by us as individuals, right? As we kind of think through, well, what's going to make me happy? Am I going to be happy if I just have a lot of everything, or is there a little, is there a level of what I need and kind of having what I need without it getting in the way of me considering the, the more important things in life? Uh, so that you know, Aristotle will write here that all things are useful that are of such a nature that where there is too much of them, they must either do harm or at any rate be of no use to their possessors. So practicing kind of a measured life, uh, both for a political community uh, and uh, for an individual. And this is where he really kind of brings the conversation back to okay, what's the end once again well, the end is is happiness, whether you're talking about the particular individual or the state. So all things have to be measured by the degree to which they are conducive uh, to that, that happiness. So that involves uh, prudence, it involves uh, wisdom, temperance, courage, uh, et cetera. Yeah, it was a great observation and it's a great test for things in our lives. So something that you can have too much of it cannot be the ultimate good, right? If it's, if, if, it's, if it's good only within a certain range, a moderate range, then there's some limit to it. Um, but on the other hand, there are certain things you would say, well, you can't have too much love, right? Boy, you know, I, I'm really keeping the great commandments just too well. Uh, love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength to excess. Got to really cut back on that. Loving my neighbor as myself, way, way, way overcommitted in that area, right? You could never say that. And in fact, you know, you think about the classic passage on the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5, Paul concludes by saying, against these, there is no law, right? Because <laughs> there's no limit to, to which, you know, to your self-control, there's no limit to your love. All of these fruits of the spirit, you would seek without measure. You would, you have them and you want more, right? You, you ask the Holy Spirit for more over the entire course of your life. The most sanctified person could always have more. Of, of these fruits. And that's not true 
of external goods. Uh, that's not true of some of the things that we associate with the health of the body, right? There are things that you could say in those areas where, you know, I, I have enough and maybe I have too much. Um, but, but when it comes to those most excellent qualities of character, we always seek more because they are good in themselves, not as means to something else. So we uh, aspire to, to what we ought to be, or if we're leading a state, we, we hope that that state will aspire to what it ought to be, uh, recognizing the various goods that uh, we kind of process as we, we think through the ought. So the second conversation, that, like I said, it could be taken up in a podcast of its own, is really a kind of this, this seminal conversation throughout human history, which is, is it best to think about the happiness of the individual or the happiness of the state or society? So should we care more about the eyes or the we's in, in human, in the human experience. And, you know, for a lot of human history, the, the happiness of the collective body was or superseded the happiness of individuals. So if you were living in the Greek world, Sparta and Athens, the goals of the Spartan um, life were more important than your own individual happiness. And that's been the way, I think, of, of, of many a political community to kind of stomp down on the individual. What's, what's interesting is that as you move forward in, in history, particularly in the West, what's become more prominent in our day is placing the interest or the happiness of the individual above the collective. So Aristotle is taking up this question, whether the happiness of the individual is the same as the state or different, it's really, which one should you tend to uh, more? And he's gonna argue that you can tend to both at the same time, because it is evident, he argues, that the form of government is best in which every man, whoever he is, can act best and live happily. So you, can, you ought to aim for that best form of government in which all individuals can, can find their share of happiness. Even though we have different um, personalities, we have different talents or different gifts, the best form of government would be the one that was most conducive to individual happiness. So he doesn't seem to want to, to place the state so high above the individual that it doesn't tend towards the individual's happiness nor make so much of the individual's happiness that it doesn't call upon the individual to think about uh, the welfare of the state. Right. There's, a, there's a, an appropriate balance there. You know, I was teaching yesterday, uh, kind of wrapping up our study of the Jacksonian era. And one of the things that emerges during that period as, as a key rule of justice is notions of utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number. And, and I point out every time we get to that point in the semester, how, how different that is from the founder's notion of human beings as individual possessors of intrinsic dignity and individual rights. So there's a kind of collective aspect to a utilitarian measure that says, you know, aggregate happiness. If, if that aggregate happiness is greater than the aggregate pain caused by a given policy or decision, then good enough. We don't have to look at the individuals. We don't have to care about the fact that that arrogant happiness came at the expense of destroying the lives of this entire class of people. And obviously you think about that 
in antebellum America in the context of American slavery or policy toward Native American tribes, like you know, the, the ways that you could justify on utilitarian grounds policies that committed gross violations of, of the rights of, of, of certain individuals. And so, you know, the, the danger there uh, of, a, of a democratic majoritarian culture, which is the kind of culture we still live in, is, is that those individual rights get overwhelmed by, by this collective majoritarian power. And we're, we're too quick to focus on uh, the good of, of the many when that doesn't include all. Yeah, the danger on one hand of a democratic, democratic collectivism, and then you could talk about the other danger, right? Democratic individualism. So within democracy right. itself, right, is a tendency to place too much emphasis on the good of the collective, usually the many, or on the good of the individual as a part uh, of, of the many. So what is it really, I mean, I'm, I told you, this is a really interesting conversation. It begins with, okay, what, what does happiness amount to? Does it amount to having external goods, the goods of the body or the goods of the soul? The goods of the soul, character matters. Okay, second question, what's more important, the good of the individual or the good of the state? And can they both be the same thing? And then it gets here to really another a third great question, which is, it seems to be that there are two archetypes of life that are best, the life of the philosopher and the life of the statesman. So what are the best ways of life? The life of the philosopher, the life of the statesman. Which is better, the life of the philosopher or the life of the statesman? The active, noble political life or the contemplative, reasoned, thoughtful life? And so you see, see where he's gone. What is happiness? Happiness for the individual or society. And then these, these two um, ways of life for the individual that could be best. And, and, and in a way, right, what he's doing here is he's suggesting that perhaps the individual who chooses the life of the statesman, who chooses that political path, may think through what is good more in terms of the collective political community, because he's, he's kind of lent himself, he's lent his life to thinking about that good, whereas the philosopher is kind of drawn to the good of the individual and, and that contemplative life. And then the, I guess the question would be is, is there a, uh, an admixture of these two types, a, a, a philosophic statesman, a philosophic king that Aristotle is presenting to us uh, that may be the real thing, uh, not um, so Socrates' um, imagining of the thing in his city and speech. Uh, I would argue here, Matt, that that Aristotle is both philosopher and statesman and, and writing the ethics and writing the politics and shows us that both can be accomplished. But he takes up this question like in a really, really interesting way. He says that usually if you're living that kind of active life of a statesman, the tendency for you is to want to acquire as much power as you can to achieve your good ends. So is there a temptation in choosing a political course of action and the life of statesmanship that, that moves you in the direction of doing things that are unlawful or moves you in a direction of, 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 of a distortion or corruption of your soul? What do you make of, of this suggestion? 
Well, there's so much there. It's a great conversation. You know, I was I was teaching the Federalist essays on the executive on Monday. And, you know, you see Hamilton writing about energy in the executive and the attributes of the presidency under the Constitution, which are meant to draw the very best people to the office in, in a way that no one was attracted to the Congress under the Articles. There was nothing you could do. The great men of the founding era were all governors or diplomats during that period of the 1780s until the Constitution. And then all of a sudden, right, they're drawn to the presidency. They're drawn, in the case of Hamilton, Secretary of Treasury, all, all the financial instruments he establishes and policies for the new nation. Right now, there's something to, to be done. Right? There's some publicly spirited enterprise worthy of, of great abilities and and giving the opportunity to be remembered as, as great, right? to, to be a, a matter of historical, uh, a person of historical significance. When I think about someone like a Lincoln, right, as, as that philosophical statesman, uh, who though certainly never educated um, in the universities in, in, in political philosophy, you know, had studied Euclid carefully and had learned from Euclid uh, that geometers commitment to logic and to reasoning through problems and to then applying them in the very contingent circumstances that you face as, as president, of course, all the more so as president during a civil war. So I think there is, there is room for that philosophical way of looking at things to be exercised by a statesman and, and yet also for, for the statesman to, 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 to realize the good for, for others in a way that's more difficult for the philosopher who's who's focused on individual study to actually achieve. Yeah, I, I, and I think that this what he's telling us in this conversation is that, just as you said, the statesman can be philosophic, and the phil- philosopher can be caring. Right? He, this is, there's that great line right in Plato's Republic that there'll be no rest of ills for the city, right, until the philosophers assume monarchical rule or the kings become philosophic. And I think he's suggesting in, in the politics, he's suggesting in his approach, his orientation, just what this would look like. And he, and he comes back to um, you know, kind of using the, uh, an example that people would understand. And he's done this at various occasions in the politics. He, he, he proposes that the statesman here is more like a physician who cares for the health of the community than a general that's simply hoping to harness, right, a community strength, that, that you're, right. you're looking at the, the body, you're looking at the character, you're looking at uh, what's happening, and you're trying to come up with the best um, regimen for that individual so that they can be the healthiest that they can be. Uh, and so that physician, that, that's a different way of looking at a philosopher statesman uh, as, as a physician. And so here in, in chapter three, as he moves forward, um, he it, it almost seems to be like he's really moving in this direction of kind of uh, placing the life of the statesman above um, the philosopher. But he, he mentions here that there, there's a problem, right, with with um, statesmanship, and that is that um, if you work in the field of politics you're going to be tempted, right, to be despotic uh, over others. Uh, And hence that there's an argument to be made for renouncing 
political power or renouncing political ambition, because by renouncing that political ambition, you'll almost free yourself from that temptation. You, you, won't, you won't go to a place where you'll be tempted to abuse your power. What do you make of, of this beginning to chapter three? Yeah, well, I think it's a great insight into human nature. And it's why we admire people like Washington, who, who might have been president as long as he pleased, and, and yet gave up that power, set an example that every president until FDR followed, or, you know, Cincinnatus, of course, the, the great Roman who, who gave up dictatorial power and, and went back to his farm and was willing to be under the laws rather than to be a master over his people. And of course, you know, this is just the lesson of, of Christ right, to his disciples when they want to be at his right hand and right at his left. And they say, well, that's not how this kingdom works. Right? This is a kingdom of, of service, a kingdom of sacrifice. And that's why the physician is such a great image, because the physician is wholly focused on the health of the patient, right? I mean, the, the physician as physician is not at all thinking about the physician. The physician is thinking about the person who's, who's sick or, or, or needs to be restored to health or whatever their situation is, and is entirely focused on the good of that individual, finds the satisfaction, gets from being a physician in helping others, right? That, that's, you know, there's a certain kind of feeling that you get uh, of, of having extended care and, and brought somebody through a difficult health situation. I'm sure that's just a, a glorious feeling for a doctor, right? After a, after a life-saving surgery, right? What a feeling that must be. To, to know that, that your intervention made all the difference for that person. But it was because you were focused on their good and not your good that you're able to accomplish. That. It's interesting here, right? Because we talked about just how amazing this week is, um, Holy Week, that where all things lead up to the cross. And we're both in agreement that, that all things historically lead up uh, to the cross, that the cross is the defining moment of all human history because God, who becomes flesh in the person of Christ, um, who has all the power in the world, dies you know, for our sins. And, and this would be the ultimate act and shows, right, that you can have all the power in the world, but unless you employ that uh, out of love for others, right, then there's, there's a problem here. And Aristotle would not have known of, of Christ but he, he can sense through common sense what good leadership, the good employment of power would look like. And, um, you know, how great for us to have the example, how amazing to have the example uh, to know, right, that, that our, our God um, acted um, in, in such a manner for us. If we ask what is the best life? And we have the philosophic life, we have the political life, and then we have the, the answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And, and that is only through Christ, because of Christ, following Christ, that that's a possibility for us. All right, well, we're going to wrap up the show with a return to de Tocqueville's crystal ball. The NBA regular season ended last weekend, and the play-in games are underway. And so, you know, we believe in accountability here. And so we're going to go back and, and review our regular season picks and then make some updated ones perhaps for the postseason to come. And so just to remind you, Dave, back in October, uh, so many months ago when the 
NBA season was just beginning. You picked an NBA finals of Miami versus Utah. So now going into the playoffs, Miami is the number one seed in the East. Utah, the number five seed in the West. Uh, what do you think? You still like Miami versus Utah in the finals and Miami winning it all? I'm much more confident about the Miami winning the East and then winning it all than I am Utah. Miami will take on the winner of uh, Philadelphia, Toronto. I think Toronto's going to um, beat the 76ers in that series. And I can see Miami defeating Toronto and making it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, there they'll probably play, uh, my guess, is uh, either the Celtics or the Nets. I think the winner of the Celtics-Nets series uh, will, will probably beat the Bucs. That that's, would be my guess there. But, yeah, I, I feel good about Miami. Utah has a much more difficult path. They're going to have to uh, beat Dallas uh, and then go and play Phoenix, even just to make it to the Western Conference uh, final. So uh, Donovan Mitchell is going to have to have the playoffs of his, his life to do that. Uh, but I'll, I'll uh, well, I, I won't stick with, with Utah there. I, I think I would, if I'd go Phoenix, Miami, uh, still with a Miami victory if I was a betting person. Okay. Another disappointment for Phoenix all the way to the finals two years in a row, but not quite a championship. Right. So I, I picked Milwaukee versus Golden State back then. Uh, both teams are number three seeds going into the playoffs. Though I think it's fair to say Golden State would have probably been the number two seed if it hadn't been for Steph's, Steph Curry's injury. And so they've, you know, throughout the regular season, they were consistently a few games behind Phoenix, but within hailing distance of them until kind of late season slump, slump um, that mostly followed Curry's injury. Um, and he may be back for game one. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'm okay with those picks still. I, again, I, I think I agree with you that Phoenix is probably the best bet to come out of the West. Uh, I think Milwaukee is a reasonable contender. Uh, like you said, this, this opening round series between the Celtics and the Nets could go a long way to determining the Eastern Conference champion. So I, I'm going to stick with my preseason pick. Uh, I don't feel super confident about Milwaukee, to be honest, but I think, you know, there's no one team in the East that I think is so dominant. You look at the records, they were all so close. So, so why not? You know, maybe the, the playoff experience of last year carries them through again. Now, the second thing that we picked was regular season wins for Lakers and Celtics. And you remember, we got some particular heat from one of our listeners about this, who was quite sure the Lakers would win more games than the Celtics and that we were way, way underselling the Lakers. As it turns out, we were way overselling the Lakers. Uh, you said 46. I said 44 wins. And they actually came in 33 and 49, a horrific regular season uh, on, on the Celtics side. You said 50, and I said 47, and they came in with 51. So you were almost right on. And, and frankly, they might have been better off with 50 rather than 51 because it was that 51st victory that, that made them have to play the Nets after their play-in victory last night. So um, I'd say a job well done overall on, on the regular season picks there. I think both of us were skeptical of the Lakers' ability to – keep healthy and, you know, with the age of, of their stars for that blend of, of Westbrook Davis and, and LeBron to succeed. Uh, any, any thoughts on response to our, our critics uh, on our NBA picks? Well, that, that person picked Denver Atlanta, correct? So yeah. That's, uh, wow. I don't know about those two. <laughs> I think that uh, 
Atlanta in particular, I think just, you know, I think they're going to have to win two games, right. Just to get in. Yeah, and, right. Um, so we'll see. I mean, there, I, you know, I, I think we, we've been, we've done pretty well. So. Um, yeah. You got to be careful when you want to, you want to, you want to bring the heat against the hosts. All right. Okay. Here we go. All right. That's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget you can contact us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. Have a great week. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. 2020 vision.